Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Life is a series of transitions, and whether it's changing jobs or starting a family, transitions can be challenging. Today, we're going to be talking about a very specific career transition, postdoc to faculty. Our guests today are Drs. Lee Krauss and Nikki Partridge. Dr. Krauss is director of the Cecil H. and Ida Green Center for Reproductive Biology Sciences at UT Southwestern Medical Center, and Dr. Partridge is a professor of basic science and craniofacial biology at the NYU College of Dentistry. Thank you both for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. So getting that PhD is a wonderful accomplishment. So much has led to that moment, and before long that postdoc is going to embark on their wonderful career path, but the problem for some, and maybe a stressful one at that, is identifying what that path should be, how to traverse it successfully. You both have already walked this road. Can you tell us a bit about your experience and and how you got where you are today? Why don't we start with you, Dr. Partridge? Uh, yeah, thanks very much. Uh, well, I uh, got both my degrees, uh, bachelor's and PhD, at the University of Western Australia. And I was uh, did my PhD on uh, development of a liver enzyme. And then I went to Melbourne and did uh, a year of uh, postdoc in that, and then transitioned into the bone field. And uh, one of the reasons being is that I could see that uh, uh, research on development and neonatal development was not very well funded, and research on uh, bone osteoporosis, which is a, a, a disease of the elderly, was much better funded. And I've stayed in that field ever since. And I was there in Melbourne for eight years and then moved to the United States, did a, a postdoc at Washington University, and then uh, transitioned with my mentor to St. Louis University where I was on the uh, non-tenure track, and I was supposed to stay in the U.S. only for two years. I had a very prestigious Australian fellowship and uh, was supposed to leave and come back to, go back to Australia, but I started getting my own funding, and um, I stayed on and managed to transition into a tenure track faculty and rose through the ranks at St. Louis University to be a full professor. And after that point, I started to get invitations to um, look at positions as a chair. And I uh, applied for, for those and ultimately was chosen to be chair of physiology at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Jersey. I did that for nine years. And then for various reasons, some personal, some because of financial situation for New Jersey, I applied for the position of Chair of Basic Science and Craniofacial Biology at NYU College of Dentistry and got that. And I was there for nine years. I just stepped down from that position last year. I'm still a full professor. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing the story. I have a lot of follow-up questions, but I also want to hear from Dr. Krauss. So my career path, I think, has been quite linear, and um, maybe that's uh, less common these days, but I went directly from my undergrad uh, degree at Cornell University to a graduate program at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, and uh, then on to a postdoc at UC San Diego, and from there I went on to my first faculty position at Cornell. And I think that at each step of the way I, I sort of had a goal in mind of what I was trying to accomplish 
with uh, those uh, training experiences. Sometimes they were things that I stuck with and sometimes I sort of changed along the way. So I started out as an undergrad thinking that I wanted to go to vet school mm -hmm. um, and then got involved in research and really fell in love with that. And that sort of directed me towards a graduate degree. And for me, my graduate degree was sort of a continuation of some areas of interest that I developed as an undergraduate, but an exploration and an expansion of those areas as a graduate student. And then similarly for the transition from graduate degree to postdoc, keeping some of the old and adding some new things to it. And um, at that point, um, you know, I was positioned well for starting a faculty position. And I was at Cornell University on the faculty uh, for 10 years. And then I received some interest from colleagues in having me apply for the director position at UT Southwestern. And I went and looked at it, and it was at the right time in my career uh, for a move like that. It created new opportunities for me in my laboratory, and that's where we are today. So I, I recognize a few common threads in the stories that sometimes opportunities that you may not know were coming all of a sudden arrive, and they, and they help put that next link in the chain of what your journey has been thus far. In either of your stories, have you ever experienced a certain level of uncertainty? Like you you weren't sure what that next step might be or, or where this was all headed. And can you talk a little bit about when you were in those moments, how you sort of pushed through those? Well, I think actually for me, the first one was straight out of high school. Hmm. And uh, in Australia, you go straight into medicine out of high school, and I was thinking of doing medicine. But I knew already at age 17 that I wanted to do research. And I can remember going to see a counselor and said, here in the manual, it says that you can uh, do two years of medical school and then do a year of research. And he said, what do you want to do? You want to do research? You want to do medicine? I said, I want to do research. Well, go and do a PhD. And so I knew then immediately from age 17 that that's what I would ultimately wanted to do. And I think I've, I've continued in that. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, the greatest time of uncertainty was um, not so much centered around me being uncertain what I wanted to do, but uncertain whether I would be able to accomplish that goal. And that was transitioning from a postdoc to a faculty position. And, you know, I think I knew quite well that, you know, what I could accomplish as a postdoc was going to determine whether I would be uh, able to get a faculty position and what type of faculty position I would be able to have. And, you know, so it was starting out as a postdoc and struggled in the beginning and sort of questioned whether this was going in the right direction. And I wanted that faculty position, but, you know, I had to work through those initial struggles and was able to sort of turn my research program around and have some good success there and get that faculty position that I, I desired. But there was, there was, you know, probably two years of, of uncertainty and it just had to work through it. Sometimes the uncertainty might even be wh where this is all heading. What's even available for me, you know, in the future? So can you help young researchers who are maybe listening to this podcast envision what some of their potential futures might look like? What potential career paths are out there waiting for them? People are often trying to decide, are they going to go into the academic track or are they going to go into industry? And I've certainly had uh, postdocs of my own who have been very uncertain about that and sort of thought, if I go to industry, I've got a much more prescribed life, and it's better if I'm a woman. 
and I've had to persuade them, no, you, in academia, you can also have a good life and a good uh, career in terms of research, and it doesn't necessarily impede you as a woman and a mother. Anything to add to that possible sure. career future? Yeah, sure. I think that, uh, you know, it's interesting. We, we tend to talk about these as alternate career possibilities, but the reality is that the vast majority of PhDs will end up going along one of these, quote, alternate career paths. You know, we tend to make this distinction between academia and industry, but there's a wealth of other positions out there that someone could explore, being a journal editor, um, working in patent law, teaching at a a four-year undergrad university, um, which can be a very rewarding experience. Um, and, uh, you know, even, uh, things like going into venture capital, um, mm. which are all, uh, uh, types of career paths that would require a PhD. And some of those may actually require a postdoc as well. So, you know, I think those are some of the, the possibilities out there. So a few folks are probably going to see the title of this podcast and they haven't yet entered their postdoc and they already have questions about, well, how do I even select the right postdoc program. Do you have any advice or tips for them? Uh, I think it has to depend on the individual. And I mean, because the laboratories are tremendously variable. Mm-hmm. And you can either choose to go to a really large laboratory with very high status and high quality publications, but you might be one of 20 postdocs. And that might be fine for you. Uh, but you might be operating very uh, much uh, independently. Mm-hmm. Um, the other type, you know, could be a smaller laboratory. And uh, you have to look at that yourself and decide uh, what suits you the best. And do you want more attention? Do you want to be able to interact with your PI more? Um, or do you want to go to the absolute top-level place uh, where you may not get to talk to the PI so much? Those are things I think they need to think about. Yeah, I agree with what Nikki said, and and maybe taking a step before that is thinking about, you know, what is that I would like to accomplish with my um, postdoc? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you are on the academic track, then you should make sure that you're choosing a mentor and a laboratory that has had success in moving postdocs through uh, on the academic track. Um, and, uh, you know, those are questions that you can ask. Obviously, the history of the lab and the success of the former trainees is public knowledge. So these are things that you can look into. If you have a more specialized interest, let's say that you are really interested in going into industry, uh, does your potential mentor have any connections with industry? Has he or she worked in industry at some point in their career and might be able to help you facilitate that? Or at the very least, is there are there people in the immediate environment at the institution who would be able to help you with that? Or, you know, in any of these other alternate paths that we had talked about before, does anything of relevance exist in the environment where you would do your postdoc that could help you in achieving that next step? So let's say now we have somebody who's in their postdoc and they have great aspirations for their future. They want to do wonderful things. They want to make the most of this postdoc phase that they're in right now. What can they do while they're in this postdoc phase to really set themselves up well for that next step? Well, first of all, I recommend that people do my IDP, uh, which is a program that's science developed, the journal science developed. 
And any laboratory that's funded by NIH, the mentor in their annual reports has to report whether graduate students or postdocs uh, have done that my IDP and whether the uh, mentees are actually communicating and discussing it with the mentor. Hmm. And I recommend that anyone, not, not, it can be you know international laboratories, non-NIH funded laboratories should also do it. And there's a questionnaire that gives you an assessment of what are your abilities, uh, whether you should say go into industry or consulting or uh, whether you should just be doing uh, basic lab research. It'll give you information on that, and you should then discuss it with your mentor. So I think that's one thing that I recommend. Uh, the other thing, if an institution has committees where there's an actually mentoring committee, that's an excellent thing to have. You might, if you're a postdoc and they don't have it, you might even suggest that they start them. Mm. And where there's some other people apart from your mentor who can uh, help you be there as a backup, because sometimes things go wrong. Uh, between a mentee and a mentor, and it's good to have some other people who are looking after you and are watching your back and can also give you advice. So those are some of the things I think you should do. Yeah, I think those are great suggestions and you know about some of the specific ways in which you can really prepare yourself. Uh, I think what I would offer in addition to that is really having a very deliberate approach to your postdoc and not waiting for things to happen to you. I think that's a very common phenotype that I see is that mm -hmm. postdocs are just waiting for things to happen, um, waiting for the career plan to magically appear or the opportunities to arise. And, um, and I think these are things that you have to create. So, you know, I try to coach my postdocs and actually all my trainees that, you know, for example, if you go to a meeting, have a plan for that meeting. What is it that you want to accomplish? Who do you want to meet? Who do you want to network with? Who do you want to go and engage um, about science, their science and, and, and your science and use that as an opportunity to meet people? And uh, if there are specific things, you know, if you were interested in you know, becoming a journal editor. Uh, the journal editors are at meetings or at other uh, types of events that you might attend. Make sure that you interact with them, develop a dialogue, maybe even have an opportunity to visit with them, to see, to really explore, to network, to set yourself up. Um, so for any of those career paths, there are things that you can do very deliberately that will help position you. And, and it shouldn't be, I'm going to come into my lab and do three, four, five years of bench work, and then all of a sudden I'm going to think about what's next, right? This is, you need to be deliberate and doing things all along the way that are preparing you for that goal. The other thing that I would say is think about the narrative that you are going to tell about your story mm -hmm. when you are going out and applying for a job, whether it's in industry, whether it's a faculty position or any other type of position. You know, what is the, who are you as a scientist? How did you get here? Why are you inspired to do this or that? And, and how are you going to bring that forward? And what kind of faculty member are you going to be? When you get hired, what kind of colleague are you going to be? And think about that narrative that you can tell. Do you have any unique experience? 
experiences that would set you apart from some other person? Um, do you have any unique experiences in the lab? Did you take on some responsibilities maybe that a postdoc doesn't normally take on? You know, did you, were you the driving force for a grant for the lab or something like that, that you participated in a really integral way? And these are all part of that story that you're going to tell about yourself that's going to get someone interested in hiring you. Let's talk about that moment when it's time to negotiate that first faculty position. What are some key elements to keep in mind? Uh, well, you need to know what you're going to be doing. You, you need to have a very good research project that's got you to the point of being interviewed. And before you even go and interview, you need to assess what is it going to take to succeed Mm -hmm. and how much money do you think you need? Probably on a first interview, you're not going to need that. On a second interview, you would definitely need that. As a chair, I've recruited a lot of faculty, and I usually ask on the first interview that if they're selected to come back for a second interview, I'll be sending them a request for a wish list. But I think before you even go, you need to have an idea of what it's going to take to succeed in your research project. Uh, you know, what are you expecting to have a postdoc support? Uh, what are the unique things that you need to do your research, uh, equipment-wise, technology-wise? Do you have a lot of need for animal support, reagents, etc.? You, you need to have an idea about all of that before you even go for the first interview. But when it comes to negotiating, you should put that all together. And uh, often, just from your own laboratory, where you've come out of your postdoc, you should be able to put together a wish list of equipment and uh, supplies. Although, if you're diverging from your postdoc mentor's research, and you probably are to some extent, uh, you need to have researched that and find out what it's going to cost you to do everything you need to do. The other thing is to find out and negotiate uh, other, the cause in the place you're going to that can provide you with all the support you need. Uh, you also, of course, want to negotiate your salary. And if you're going to a medical school, you can go to the AAMC uh, uh, website and uh, you may have to buy it, but there are publications every year summarizing all of the salaries throughout the United States and uh, divided by regions, and you can then see what the mean salaries are. Of course, it's going to depend. If you're coming to New York, mm -hmm. uh, you'll probably want more and you want to find out about housing, for instance, uh, or there's some support. And then you can talk to your friends. Uh, maybe your mentor can help you to some extent. But, you know, there are a lot of differences in terms of regional salaries. So you mentioned a, a wish list. Do you have any guidance you can offer as what might be the boundaries of the wish list? Like, should it just be, this is my, my definite needs? Or if I could have more, should I include those in the wish list? Or if I put too much, are they going to think I'm too needy? Um, I'm going to be taking too much resources and they won't consider me anymore. It's true. I, and I actually think that I've, I've said before, you know, that it's a careful process to not ask for too much or too little. It needs to be just right. Uh, but you can certainly put a basic absolute needs, and I think you can also say that I would like to have this as well, mm -hmm. but uh, if you really need it, absolutely need it for your research, I think you have to put it in as it's an absolute need. And those things can be negotiable. If the people really want you, they want you to succeed, and they will try to give you as much as they can. And uh, there might be a few things I say, oh, we've already got this, um, but but yes, I think you can put sort of some things that are sort of really blue sky wishes and uh, some things that are absolute needs. 
Yeah, I would just follow up on that and say that um, I think in addition to understanding what your needs are, um, which is, is very important to have those clearly identified, I think it's also important to understand the environment that you're going to, both the local department environment and more broadly across the campus, because that also will determine what you need. And, you know, you may have a, a recruiting chair who's telling you, don't worry about it. We have this piece of equipment located there and you have access to it and that's fine and that's great if that's the case but you should really make sure you understand that environment and talk to other faculty who use it and is it freely accessible as as you were told that kind of thing um, so I think it's important to understand that um, the environment um, and one piece of advice that I got along the way was just remember that the people who you're negotiating with might be your colleagues someday, right? So it's very important to be respectful during the recruiting process and by all means ask for those things that you really need and be firm for, on the things that are very important to you. But, uh, you know, don't be outrageous or, or over the top because you are, I think, sending a message with how you negotiate, right? And it tells them something about the type of faculty colleague that you would be. Before we close, any last words of wisdom for our listeners who are maybe in the middle of this journey and eager for next steps, maybe anxious, maybe nervous? Well, I think, as Lee said, you have to know who you are. Uh, you need to know uh, who you are as a scientist, what your research is, and uh, to be deliberate and strategic about things, and to know what you want to do in your life career when you get to the point that you're applying for faculty positions. Uh, you need to know where do you want to live. That's a geographic thing. And some people would say, I don't want to live in New York. Or some might say, I don't want to live in the Midwest. Um, so those are things that you need to have thought through beforehand, uh, before you even probably start applying for jobs. So those would be my recommendations. I would also uh, just suggest that, you know, you really, especially if you're on the tenure track, which is a compressed time frame for success is to really keep your eyes on the things that you will be used to evaluate you. And, you know, let's be honest, those are two things, your grants that you get and the publications that you have. And it is very, very easy to get distracted by other things, right? And if you are, if you're doing things that are taking time away from publishing and getting grants, you're probably hurting yourself when you're on the tenure track. You know, once you have tenure, um, you can explore different things and get involved in, in other things. Um, but I think that uh, it's very important to stay relatively focused on the things that are going to be used to evaluate you. Well, I want to thank you both for being a part of the podcast today. This was some great information. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. You're welcome. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. If you'd like to hear more of these, check us out on endocrine.org slash podcast or Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying these, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email at podcast at endocrine.org. Thanks again. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.